it doing? Oh, one second. Hey, oh, we're live. Oh, the internet was playing up for a second. G'day, everybody. Wow, the internet, hot damn. People stop downloading Game of Thrones. It's been long over. Stop streaming Netflix. It is time to watch uh, Coach. Hi, guys. Uh, we are here talking all things making better gaming decisions. Uh, this is a topic that I'm really excited about. It has some things that may not be exciting, but once you know it, you will get better gaming decisions. So I'm actually really excited to be talking to Paul, Paul Conti, uh, a.k.a. Radio Free Hammer Hall. Um, whenever I type it, I always type it with a U at the end. I don't know why, like Hammer Hall with an A-U-L, I don't know. But, Paul, how are you? Good, sir. I am doing fabulously well. How are you? Good, man. Good. Uh, we are doing very well. Um, so we are talking about essentially math hammer. We're talking a, a concept of using probability and maths to make better gaming decisions. And for me, when I see this at the gaming table, I see this whole thing around risk versus reward. I see people throwing dice, hoping for the best, and it never goes off because they've overcalculated the 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 probability of a dice roll and you know things go south. Uh, charge rolls is a perfect example of that. So before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the show, first off, Paul, what is Maths Hammer? Um, you know, in general, um, maybe I should start a little bit at the beginning of uh, my own yeah, journey with this. Um, I started uh, Warhammer in 8th edition when, you know, we were comparing weapon skill and strength and toughness, and it was a nightmare sometimes to figure out what your units were going to reliably be doing because this relied so much on what your opponent's stats looked like. Um, as soon as we came over to AOS, it was suddenly we had this clear, like, hit, wound, rend stat line. We knew exactly what to expect out of our units if we just sat and did the math on it. Hmm. Um, and as Age of Sigmar's progressed, you know, initially it was, you do that to figure out, you know, basically which units are worth playing and not worth playing. Then some comp systems came in and you, uh, I was kind of using it to figure out how to kind of break the comp system, see where the holes were and what they were doing. Then we got the first general's handbook and some of those points were comically wrong. Um, and so you would use math hammer to figure out what unit choices to make based on, um, you know, it just figuring out like this unit for the points is way better than that other unit for the points. Um, so it really made some clear, selections available and figuring out like play this not that uh, but as the games evolved they've gotten a lot better at figuring out um the points values and they've talked about that they've actually developed an algorithm fancy word for a formula for those that are not math people um where they plug in the stats from a war scroll and it spits out a point value and they use that as their basis you know, it might get adjusted up or down depending on, you know, other um, non-quantitative things on the war scroll. Um, you know, things that are just like definitely not math. 
Um, and I think, you know, in particular things like heroes and monsters, I think are still not quite worked out in that formula quite right yet. Um, but for your standard units, it's actually, I think, really good. It's put us in a place where Math Hammer really becomes a decision-making point for what units, you know, I'm looking for a unit for a particular role. Which unit do I select for that role, right? Like, what is my best hammer unit? that's available to me? What's my best anvil unit that's available to me? Um, if I have two things that are kind of similar, you know, what's the difference between them? Because I know yeah. like on points, like they're, they're roughly fairly pointed against each other, but it's, if my goal is maximum damage output, which one's the best deal? If my goal is so, you know, so, big so I guess what I'm hearing and just like what I'm hearing, like just to, to pause it for a second, is that this concept and this principle of math hammer, it's essentially using math probability, statistics, and analytics, and it influences our game. Um, now our, our game has influence at the the list building stage. And it's looking about wounds and value. Uh, it could be just how often are you expected to make an armor save? Because um, a 100-wound list is not the same as another person's 100-wound list. 100 points worth of grots is not... Sorry, 100 wounds of grots is not the same value as 100 wounds of Mortec Guard. And then 100 yeah. points of Mortec Guard in Petrofix Elite versus 100 points, 100 wounds of Mortec Guard in Crematorium. So that in alone, you start to kind of understand decision-making points so that you get value. Um, but it doesn't just stop at the list building stages, right? Does it? No, it, it informs your decisions on the tabletop and it shapes your expectations. Um, one of the things that I really love to use Math Hammer for is to simply be able to set expectations for what my units are going to do ahead of time. Um, you know, I know I play Nurgle a lot, usually Blight King heavy lists. I know a unit of five Blight Kings is going to average uh, 10 wounds that my opponent has to save in every attack if I get all five in. Like, and just because of the number of dice being thrown and the exploding sixes all being factored in, it makes them incredibly consistent that it's like eight to 12 almost every. So I know yeah. what the consistency of my unit is going to be like. Um, and then you have other things like, you know, uh, certain weapons on like the Karadron Overlord's ships where they'll have one shot, but it does six damage. So you know that it's an all or nothing and what are my odds of actually hitting with it? When it hits, it's devastating. But when it misses, it's probably going to miss more often than it hits. So it, it's a matter of setting expectations so that you, you get a feel for your army on paper before you ever get it on the table. Like you, you know what to expect out of a unit before you ever put it into combat. So a perfect example, right, could be, um, so this is where 
understanding, I guess, what we're talking about here is going to help you be a better gamer because it's going to help you build better lists. It's going to help you make better decisions. And one of the things that I see often is people asking, how do I make better decisions? Whether it might be, how do I choose um, the spells that I cast? How do I choose the units that I might deep strike or alpha strike? Um, I see people building, you know, alpha strike lists all the time. They've got to set up outside of nine inches and they've just set up their, you know, they've, they've taken turn one. They're going to drop nine inches. They've got five units. They're going to try to charge me and try to hit me before I've got a command point to spend. But the problem is, is that without understanding the probability of rolling a nine inch charge, you're setting yourself up potentially for failure. So I guess if that is going to be your outcome, how do I reduce the risk? So this is where, you know, when, you st- when you're choosing your spells, whether it's looking at the ways to increase your, your pool, whether it might be pluses to charge, whether it might be pluses to hit or negatives to hit, whether you're looking at rend value, whether you're looking at armor saves, when you're looking at wound characteristics, whether you're looking at there's a whole range of things where math hammer kind of applies. But essentially for me, what got me interested It was about understanding the probability of an event. So what's the probability of a spell being cast, of a charge being made, um, whether it's going to be the amount of damage that I want to put out with a unit um, or absorb with a unit from an armor save. But then there's the expected value. And you kind of mentioned as well, you know, when I roll uh, a a D3 mortal wounds, am I always going to get three? Am I going to get one? Am I going to get two? Um, what's the expected value that I can get from my units? So for me, that's the kind of two pools that I see, Matt's Hammer, um, and it's about probability. But ultimately, like, forget this the the concept of maths, and I, I can see some people in the chat are like, oh, do my maths homework, and, you know, maths is probably the course that I wasn't the best at at school. But fundamentally, it's just about numbers and applying some methodology and science behind what we do during the game. Is that fair yeah, to say, Paul? Really- Really, and I think to maybe relax some concerns that people have, um, the math is actually really, really not complicated. It's addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. That we're not doing crazy equations. We're not doing calculus. We're doing you know basic math functions. This is like middle school level math. Doesn't require an Excel sheet if you don't want to go down that path. We're not sitting down there, list science. You're going to be sitting there, kind of doing V lookups and pivot tables, and you know you're not going to be doing. Uh, there, there is some, there's some calculators that will kind of show off, but um, just there's some right. even just understanding some simple principles um, will, will help you make better decisions in the long run. Right, and it's that's the thing that I really want to emphasize for people is that the math that you need is not terribly complicated. Pretty much everybody is capable of it. And it's just a matter of kind of getting your head around the basics, um, maybe having a cheat sheet to help you through some of the things. And the big thing really is a lot of pre-planning, knowing the stuff ahead of time so that you're not trying to calculate it on the fly. You just kind of you look at it so much that you kind of get this intuitive feel for what your expectations should be. And you're not yeah. even necessarily thinking about the specific math anymore. 
Let's get into some principles and I can see the chat is going off. So two plus tough Doug has asked a really good question and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later, which he's, he's mentioned about um, things like the small heroes that come in and kind of buff up your units. So, you know, these force amplifiers. But before we get into that, let's get into the basic principles of Hammer. So we're all a stage and we kind of understand what is going on. So we've prepared this earlier, surprise of the century. Uh, imagine like uh, that, that we're, we're in the classroom, we're teaching uh, math, math Hammer 101. So to kick things off, to, to start, to kind of set the scene, uh, we're going to imagine we've got a one, uh, one D6, uh, a, a one, just one dice. Now, the probability of rolling um, a one is 16.7. Two is 16.7. Three? 16.7 can kind of see it so paul what what does this all mean and um why are all the numbers the same uh well you're rolling a six-sided die and that 16.7 is one sixth so it is each of those have an equal chance on a six-sided die of coming up so that's kind of uh an important foundational thing to understand that if you have a fair six-sided die, you're working in like sixths is the the math that you have to get used to. Um, and that you have an equal chance of each individual outcome occurring. So it's um, at least with a fair die, we're assuming that the dice aren't loaded. Right. No, no. I send the microwave or drilled another hole uh, or less holes. But on <laughs> average, there is a one in six chances of rolling a dice. Mm -hmm. Seems pretty basic, right? We're in a priority roll. I have a one in six chance that I'm going to roll a six. There's a one in six chance I'm going to roll a one. The one in six chance I'm going to roll a four. The the numbers, assuming that the dice are um are not cooked, um is 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 the same. So. Seems pretty basic, right, Paul? Anything we want to add to this? Yeah. Uh, no, it just gets more interesting from here. That's all. Correct. So now we start to think about, well, what does this look like when we start adding multiple dice or when we want to start looking at a different role? So so we, we, we kind of understand the basics and we're still on a D6. We've got one dice, but this is kind of where we want to now start making maybe an armor safe or we're, we're starting to make a different role. So Paul... What does this particular mean? So this is the, the table that says the chances of rolling a number or above. Right. So this is your 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus, 4 plus, 5 plus, 6 plus. So what this shows essentially is that, you know, on a 4 plus, you have the odds of a 4 plus the odds of a 5 plus the odds of a 6. So that adding that together comes to 50%. So a four up is a coin flip. Um, when you're rolling a lot of dice, that average of 50%, it's gonna get closer and closer the more dice that you roll. So this gives you an idea when you're, so many of our stats are you know, X or better, like X plus. So this kind of gives you the idea of what my probability is of each individual die roll. 
um, you know, a three plus is always 66.7%, right? Or if we're going to break that down into fractions, that's two thirds. Um, sometimes fractions are easier for people to think about, I've found. Um, but yeah, this gives you the basic idea. And it's still like, it has that same symmetry as the, um, you know, the individual die rolls. So you're just adding up all of the different results that are going to be a pass. So where this, where this kind of comes into play for me, because I know we're starting to get into numbers and you're like, oh, maths, maths. Why this is important is this is to hit, th think about when you're making to hit rolls, to wound rolls. Uh, we're, we're making armor saves. Um, there, are, there are so many times that we're rolling. Maybe it's a damage characteristic. You know, you do a D6 damage. Um, so what's the probability of rolling a six? Or what is it, what is it more likely to roll maybe a three? Um, and then when it starts to come into as well is that if I've got, let's say, a four plus armor save, um, I don't know, insert, let's, let's say it's my free guild general uh, on his mighty griffin. He has a base four plus armor save. Now, when I get to equip the weapons, I could choose uh, a weapon option to have a shield or a weapon option maybe with a great hammer that has no shield. Um, and with the shield, I get a plus one armor save. So straight away, you can start to see that the, the chances of me rolling um, a, four plus, a, a four plus armor save, assuming there's no rent, is a 50% a, a chance. Alternatively, if I then bring it up with the shield, I'm now at a 66% chance. So I've got a much higher rate of armor save, obviously. But then if I can find ways to increase it or decrease that armor save, you can start to see the expected result. You know, straight off the bat, if I get a minus one or a minus two or a minus three rend, you start to see the likelihood of dealing more damage or losing models. This is why rend is important. This is why getting pluses to hit, pluses to wound, and then you've got the additional benefits of, let's say, re-rolling ones or re-rolling something. So um, you start to see, uh, you know, as you kind of go into combat or making a decision point, what is the likely outcome, you know? Yeah. And I will say, just as kind of like a footnote to that, um, factoring in re-rolls when you're actually doing the math out by hand is probably the most complicated thing in the math hammer that I do. <laughs> um, just because it's, it's a weird kind of formula that you have to do to get there. It's very, it's easy to grasp once you understand what's going on, but like, what the formula looks like in an Excel spreadsheet is like this compared to what everything else is. I think, I think this is, this is quite clear. And then what, what, what we're going to look at a little bit later as well is we're going to look at the, the sequence of events as well. So we know that, for example, if I've got um, my Phoenix Guard or I think Phoenix Guard, because I know the characteristic off the top of my head while we're streaming. So like I'm hitting on three, right? So it means that, you know, let's say I've got 10 dice um, and they're hitting on threes. It means 66% of those or 67 or two thirds of those uh, are going to hit. So I remove one third out of the pool and then kind of then I've got to go through the to wound roll and then there's a whole bunch of sequences. So just think about this. This is kind of how it starts to play out. Paul, anything else you want to add here? Uh, no, I think we're chugging right along.
Sweet. I, we haven't lost anybody yet. They're like, oh, man, back to school. But this is important. <laughs> and to me, this is kind of where things start getting a bit hot spicy. It's when we start adding a second dice into the pool. So now for anyone who's listening to the podcast later, we're talking about 2d6. So this is going to come into effect for casting spells, for charge rolls, for example, um, are, are two key areas that you'd roll a 2d6 for. Um, and you can start to see that uh, the sequence of events, um, you want to roll this number or above. Obviously, a two uh, a three-inch charge is a lot easier than, let's say, a nine-inch charge. But, Paul, what does this mean to you? Uh, one of the first things to notice here is that when you're on 1d6, each increment goes up the same. It's You're going up one-sixth every time. You know, you go up, you know, like from a three up to a four up, you're increasing by a sixth. When you're doing it on 2d6, this is a, um, like, if you graph it out, it's a bell curve. So your most likely thing is the seven in the middle, and then everything else goes down very rapidly and curves out at the ends. So, you know, your most likely outcome is going to be a seven. Um, and then you'll see like six and eight are also like roughly, they're going to be equal to each other in terms of how often they occur. But when you're looking at like six plus versus seven plus versus eight plus, they're, um, they kind of like invert each other. Um, the the big things to really note on this um, are you know things like spell casting and um, unbinding and especially charges is to understand what your actual odds are and there's a very important reason that we have all of these abilities where you have like a deep strike or a setup of some sort, and you have to be more than nine inches away from the enemy. If you look at what your odds of making a nine inch charge are, it's 27.8%. They designed this so that you're only actually making that nine inch charge about a quarter of the time. So it is, they, they made it so that you have this advantage that you get to you know, have this set up anywhere on the board, basically, but your restriction makes it so that it's really hard without other special abilities to get the jump on your opponent and alpha strike them with that. So if you think about, like for me, like when I start looking at this, so um, a, a couple of decision points here. So um, we've got we've got a three inch charge, for example. We use a number three. So number three has a ninety seven point two percent success rate, a three or above. So what does it mean? It means that when I set up a three inch charge, there's still a chance of me failing. There is a, a two point eight percent chance that I'm going to fail my charge still. Number two is that when I'm charging, you said, let's say a nine inch charge, there is a only less than a 30% chance that I'm going to succeed. So as you said, one in four. So I would need four nine inch charges to get one successfully. 
if I did have, let's say, command point and I could re-roll the charge, and this is some maths that I've done behind the scenes, that then increases your likelihood to a 48% chance. So it improves a little bit with one command point. If you, let's right. say, had chronomatic cogs and you're able to bring that charge from a 9 to a 7, all of a sudden you've almost doubled your success rate. You've gone from a 27% chance of success to a 58% chance. So it's much more likely that with a plus two, you're going to hit that that charge. So all of a sudden, the value of chronomatic cogs, the value of a, a musician that might increase the charge, or you know any any of these little heroes that can kind of add a plus or a minus to a unit, is going to make your life a lot better. Um, and then all of a sudden, let's say I had um, so I, I used to do a lot of these with my Legion of Nagash army, and I'd bring let's say a Morgast Harbringer or I would bring the prosecutors, the Stormcast prosecutors. And one of their benefits is that they get a 3D6 charge. They get to use three dice on the charge. If they roll three dice instead of two dice, the likelihood of hitting that nine-inch charge now becomes a 74% chance of success. So you can start to see, when you start looking at the value of, let's say, a Morgast, or the value of a prosecutor, or the value of COGS, yes, COG cost me 80 points, but it's going to decrease the chance of me failing or the requirement of spending a command point, which we know in most armies is a, um, is a finite resource, unless you're a Gits player and you got like points at the wazoo, but um, command points are a lot harder. So maybe the value of a, of a chronomatic cogs becomes a lot greater. Right. But then while we're looking at this spell casting is also on a 2d6. And cogs yep. cast, I believe, on a seven. I think so. Uh, so you're looking at fifty-eight percent of the time, cogs is going to go off. So that means, um, uh, two out of five times, cogs is going to fail to go off, and you're going to have to be out there without it you know, a little bit less than half the time you're, you're going to fail it and you're not going to have that additional buff for you available. So that comes in as well. You, you, you're hundred percent correct. Cause again, um, if we're casting spells, you know, this is, might be then thinking about, uh, is there a way to increase my spell casting capability, whether it might be a wizard that gives me plus one, whether it's a Balwin Vortex and maybe justifying the value of a Balwin Vortex, um, looking at maybe some of the, the spells that I get to cast and thinking about what's the likelihood. So, um, if you have a spell, maybe there is a trigger that when you, you cast it on, let's say Arcane Bolt, Arcane Bolt, you know, if you roll a 10 or above, or maybe Legions and a Gash, if you roll a 10 or more, you get to cast it twice. The likelihood of that event happening is, is only 16.7% chances. So you've got, you know, you've got less than one in one in five chances that you're going to do that. So it means that, you know, banking on that as a strategy, um, it's probably not viable. It's probably not something you want to bank on double casting, you know, um, uh, Van Hale's Dance Macabre or, you know, you know, making sure you always do the D3 on the on the mortal wounds from an arcane bolt when you roll a 10 plus. Um, it's an option. The event can happen, but the likelihood is less than one in five. Right. Any other any other things we can think about that kind of come into this particular section? 
Um, I think really the big thing is just noticing those differences sometimes between just one increment up or down on this chart. Um, just as an example for you, um, one of my favorite things to do in a Nurgle army is drop in like deep strike blight kings with gut rots of you. So they have to come in more than nine inches away from the enemy within six inches of the board edge. Um, blight kings get a plus one to their charge and they're coming in with a hero so they have the ability to spend a command point for a reroll. So they're coming in, they're going to have a 41% chance to make that charge the first time and then they get a reroll if they fail. So it actually puts them well over 50% odds of making that initial charge, which makes it a surprisingly uh, potent and reliable um, like offensive alpha strike sort of piece for you. Um, and a lot of players won't necessarily see it coming. And it, the interesting thing with that one in particular is like, even if you fail the charge, it's like your opponent now has 10 blight Kings in their backfield that they have to deal with, you know? So um, the, that's, excuse me one of those other kind of things to think about too is um what happens if i fail like mm. am, am i still in a good position with what i'm doing if i fail the charge so that might be something you want to consider is how do you de de-risk your decision so um i know when I, when i played legions of knight uh, so that's manfred's army and they have the teleporting shenanigans and coming from the side of the board one of the ways that i could de um de-risk my decision was if i was going to alpha strike let's say my terrorgeist or um you know it's going to be something right uh, i could bring a, a little foot troop hero um, a little vampire lord, for example. And with a command point up my sleeve, I could then re-roll that charge. So if I was going to kind of, because I know the Terrorgeist, um, I really don't want my Terrorgeist to fail its charge. And especially if I get double turned, if I if I go first, uh, the Terrorgeist doesn't make the charge and it's going to get shot at, magic that. If I lose the priority roll, then the Terrorgeist is just going to cop it. And it's a Terrorgeist is, is almost... Well, it's it's one fifth of my army at the four hundred point range. It's 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 fairly expensive, so I want to mitigate that by having a little foot troop hero with a command point that allow me to re-roll that charge. Um, but if you think about these guys at a very basic level, and you can kind of start to see the maths here that the the pluses, the re-rolls, those little those little amplifiers that you have, even simple little things like. Uh, many troops have musicians that might give them a, a re-roll to charge or plus one to the charge or plus one to a run roll or whatever it might be. The the value of that musician, making sure that you keep the musician um, in the centre of the unit so you don't lose it, um, just becomes hugely va valuable. Um, and also, as Paul mentioned, the expectation setting of a deep strike uh, outside of nine making sure that I don't have this this um, this belief that they're all going to make that nine-inch charge because we know that uh, less than one in five, or um, it's very unlikely that they're going to hit the charge um, using maths. Right. And it's really highlighted here, like how like plus one to cast, plus two to cast, plus one to charge, plus two to charge, 
just how massive that impact is on your odds of success because this isn't a linear function right like this is a a bell curve distribution so a lot of your things are going to be hanging around that middle so you know especially spell casting like if you have something that goes off on a seven and you get a plus one for to cast but seven goes to a six you go from 58 percent to 72 percent like that is such a massive difference from a plus one to cast yeah, hundred percent. So this is where, like, the Hurricane. When you think about this in, like, I say, cities, cities of Sigma, for example, cities of Sigma have a lot of spell casting at the six and the seven value point. So you're looking at a, rolling a six or a seven. By have so so I'm already kind of sitting at that seventy-two to to fifty-eight percent chance of success. Um, but then I add a Hurricanum, for example, and straight up that really brings me into that eighty to to seventy percent chance. So I can almost guarantee all of my spells are going to go off just on a base spell cast. So um, that's, that's, that's quite good when you're, when you're planning expectation setting. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going to get into some, a bit more of the maths, but I think this now kind of gets you, gets you a better understanding of just expectation and probability setting. And, and when we start thinking about making decisions, it all starts on the list building side. So when you're starting to pick your spells, when you start to think about your strategies, where you start to think about, um who goes first even um and and maybe it's taking the battalion to guarantee yourself um the well try to guarantee yourself versus um the likelihood yeah, like it, it it's all kind of coming up here um the last kind of I, I just wanted to kind of show off here and this is the bell curve that paul was talking about and for me when we start talking about the chances of rolling an exact number now there's not a many there's not many of these events in the game the one that kind of stood out to me the most was corn where if you roll an eight um basically they're going to shut a spell off regardless if you cast it on a 12 or a, a seven or whatever it might be so the, the likelihood of hitting an eight is uh is 13 percent. so again maybe not a strategy you want to bank upon mm -hmm. that's the basics we haven't lost too many people yet which is good um <laughs> <laughs> which is positive because because while it does sound dry and um i thank you all for hanging along with us um it's not the sexiest topic we're going to talk about here i think where it really helps is now that you've kind of got that foundation and you understand probability, you understand the likelihood of events, you start to look at your army a little bit differently. Like Paul, how does, how does Maths Hammer and, and these concepts and principles come into play when it comes to, let's say, list building? Um, I would say that it affects my list building and army building all the way down to how I assemble kits, like all the way down to like the very most basic thing. Um, you know, Caradron overlords are a great example because they have so many different things with like a ton of different weapons objects. So if you do the work ahead of time, you figure out what you want to optimize units for you can figure out like, oh, this is the best way to outfit my Endron riggers. 
So you do the math before you ever even build the kits, let alone start building a list. Um, so that you know what your expectations are, you know what the best options are. Um, it helps you make better decisions to really like the earliest possible point in your army building. And as Doug said in the chat as well, I think it's it's a great point here is that the, the concept itself of math hammer and probability isn't a hard topic to understand, but it's about the decision points that you make during the game. So I think what Paul's mentioned is, is, is beautiful. And that is at the start of your list building and, and assembling models, the maths hammer and the decision-making process comes in as simple as when you're equipping your demigriff knights, do you equip them with a halberd? Do you equip them with a, um, a lance and sword? Um, and there's many units in the game that gives you options to create um, either a hero in that unit that has a special weapon. Maybe it's um, the Sky Pike, whether it's going to be a, 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 the volley gun, whether it's going to be like, you know, the, the, the athematic saw. Um, or it's going to be um, when you put them into your list, which one's going to do more damage, better save. Um, but it's going to be then then when you put them on the table, it's going to be then the decision-making, whether it's going to be setting yourself up for a charge. Do you run the unit or do you try to go for the charge? You know, it, what's the likelihood of making that 10-inch charge or should I just run the unit and go for the double turn? Um, you know, is it going to be, you know, <laughs> like like um, people in the chat as well, grots? Uh, do I have the swords? Do I have them st uh, the, the stabbers? And what's the impacts of, what's the likelihood of doing um, damage with a two-inch weapon versus a one-inch weapon. So it all kind of comes into play here. Yep, definitely. And anything else you want to add to this part, or should we actually put the decisions into practice when it comes to list building? Because I know you've um, – what one of the struggles that I have is uh, in, the, let's say, the Cities of Sigma, um, there is a lot of unit choices, like elite unit choices, that are around this 150 to 170 point mark. You know, it's a whole bunch of them, and it's like, which is the best one to choose? Like, it's hard because, like, you've got Great Sword, you've got Phoenix Guard, you've got uh, Executioners, you've got Glade Guard, you've got all these these models around a similar points value, but they do so much different. Yeah, and if you look at just their stats line, their stats lines almost look identical. Yeah. So right here, this was a spreadsheet that I put together of just like the six different options that you have out of the Cities of Sigmar book that are units that are very, very similar to each other. Your great swords, your hammers, executioners, black guard, Phoenix guard, wildwood rangers. They all do two attacks uh, per model with an extra one for the unit champion, threes and threes, almost all of them have rent one, one damage. Um, and most of them have a four up save. Uh, the Wildwood Rangers are on a five up and then the Phoenix Guard have the additional four up ward save. Uh, they're of varying different point values. And then great swords and executioners, they do mortal wounds on six to hit and hammerers do mortal wounds on six to wound. So taking all of that together, which units are best for what purposes? 
And I think without doing the, going through this this process, you don't know that answer. You look at this and go, uh, I've heard on the internet Phoenix Guard are the best. So I'm just going to go Phoenix Guard. That's just my, my auto include. But right. is great swords, hammerers, executioners, uh, black guard, are they viable? And what do they bring to the table that maybe Phoenix Guard don't? So I think this is, and, and obviously we all don't have a Phoenix Guard, but sometimes battle line selections or unit selections in general can be a hard decision to make. Right. And this is a really interesting selection of units um, because they all, each different one is unique, has nuances. There's pros and cons to each. Your, you know, your heavy hitter that's just going to put out the absolute most damage is your great swords. Um, your best in terms of like efficiency per point is going to be the executioners though, uh, because they're pointed a little bit less and they do damage that's pretty close to the great swords. Uh, the interesting one, I think, in particular, is the Phoenix Guard. In terms of their offensive output, they are the basically the worst out of all of these on their offensive output, like in terms of like damage per point. Like they're just a bad deal on offense. But on defense, they're an extraordinary bargain, right? They are like light years ahead of everything else on defense. Um, and then you have your Wildwood Rangers that have this weird swingy thing going on where ordinarily they're weak on defense and their offense is below average. But if they're attacking a monster, they suddenly become the best offensive unit out of all of these. So it's a really interesting comparison to make. The next step beyond this that I didn't take into account and I think was something that Doug mentioned in chat a little while ago was how heroes then impact this. Mm. Because all of these have different impacts from their associated power pair heroes. You know, our very bland seeming hammerers, well... A Warden King can give them an extra attack per model. And then a Rune Lord can give them an extra rend. And suddenly that is an insanely powerful unit. Um, and you have to balance and think about how many points is this power pairing hero, you know, kind of add that with the cost of the unit and is there addition of power to the unit actually worth the points of the hero and because the unit size is variable how many models in the unit do i need to take in order for that value proposition to make sense so and the beautiful and the beautiful thing is there is no correct answer um, but you can start to think right. about your list a little bit better. If you're taking Phoenix Guard, 
Do you take them in blocks of 30? Do you take them in blocks of 20 and maybe have an anointed? Because anointed is going to make you immune to battle shock within 18. Um, mm -hmm. Now, that means you're not going to spin a command point. Um, do I take uh, Emerald Life Swarm? An Emerald Life Swarm can bring back up to D6 Phoenix Guard. So all of a sudden, for the spend of 50 points, which is Emerald Life Swarm, um, one, what is the likelihood of me bringing back uh, models? Well, on, on the average D6, I can probably expect three to four Phoenix Guard per time I do that. Um, and then second of all, um, what's the, the cost of the, of the not spending the command point? And then with the, with the command point from the uh, anointed, you can re-roll two wound rolls. So, you know, how does that then, the damage output of the, the Phoenix Guard actually might be good uh, as well as the, the armor safe potential as well as the fact that they're immune to battle shock. So all of a sudden my investment of 20 or 30 Phoenix Guard plus an anointed, yes, it becomes 500 points, but it becomes this absolute uh, you know, un unbreakable unit. Um, but it is one quarter of your army. So what does what are the trade impacts to the rest of your army? And whether you're taking this superhero, you know, a Nagash, a Teclas, or whatever it might be, um, these are decision points we're all trying to make. And is it worth it? Absolutely. And the whole point of this whole math hammer thing is to help you make decisions. It's no longer really about just find the best. Now it's really find the best value for the role that you want that unit to be in. And that's something that um, I'm starting to explore more in my Nurgle army. Um, I think I'm probably going to start picking up, a, picking up a bunch of Slaves to Darkness pretty soon. Uh, to experiment with some other things um, because, you know, just as a kind of quick anecdotal example there, um, Putrid Blight Kings are a very good all-around unit. They're good on defense, they're good on offense. And with all of the different buffs and stuff that Nurgle has available, they're pretty mobile. But if you stack buffs onto your um, chaos warriors um, and have enough of them that they're uh, re-rolling their saves and then they have a harbinger of decay backing them up, giving them an extra five up ward save. Like that is suddenly a much more defensive unit than what you had with putrid blight kings. So rather than having a bunch of all around units um, you can start experimenting with, okay, this unit has more of a specific purpose that I'm looking for. And I'm going to you know, invest heavily in defense over here, and then over here I'm going to invest heavily in offense rather than just having a big mass of guys that are good at both. And, and that goes back to what we talked about earlier about this hammer and anvil principle, which is, you know, your hammer is going to do the damage. So what is the expected damage output of the unit? And then you've got your other side, which is the anvil, which is going to be uh, taking the damage, for example. So the Phoenix Guard we know is a bit of both, but is it better to maybe to take 
uh, a block or two blocks of, I don't know, free guild guard. Uh, and I think this is kind of where the question starts to come in, start thinking about the roles, start thinking about how you use them on the table. Um, but you can start to see, and the beautiful thing as well is that um, there are a whole bunch of calculators um, and tools out there that can help you do this as well. So if Excel is not your strength, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this very basically here. So I've just brought up a war scroll. I've brought up you. Um, I brought up the free guild guard, um, an absolute staple in the community, well, my community anyway. They're gonna they're gonna defend the the free cities. So what I can do here really quickly, and I'm and I'll put this I'll put all the links down below as well. So if you guys want to do this yourself, there are a couple of tools. Um, there's another one here. This uh, this is another great tool as well. But at a very basics here, right? I can say, well, my free guild guard, uh, if they have a sword, they hit on fours. And they're going to wound on fours. Uh, let's say they're attacking a, a, an army with, I don't know, armor save of five, for example. They've only got one damage. And I'm going to have 20 in combat. Um, they only do one attack each. Let's get, uh, let's do one for the champion as well. So what I can start to do is start to calculate the likelihood and start thinking about how much damage they're going to be doing. So I can start to see, you know, the, the average ranges Oops, as I move around. But on the flip side, on this other particular tool, and this is probably the one that I like a bit better, I can go into a whole bunch of, 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 um, of detail here. I could say, um, you know, how many attacks? Well, they've got, uh, let's say, 10, uh, 10 attacks. Um, they're hitting on fours. Uh, there is no, um, there's no modifiers. So there's no plus to hit or there's no minus to hit. I could do this uh, if I want to add a plus to the Karakhanum, for example. If they do exploding sixes, maybe they generate more attacks. They do mortal wounds on sixes. Um, I do wounding on fours. Again, no modifiers, nothing special. They're just generic free guild card. Uh, no re-rolls, no rend. They're just swords. They just do damage one. Then I can start to put in, well, the armor save they're fighting against is five. No cover, uh, no re-rolls. Uh, the opponent only has one. And then you start to see the real benefit of maths, right? So I can see that of the 10 attacks, um, I make my 10 attacks. If I'm hitting on fours, it means that I expect I'm going to get five of those as successes. Then if I'm wounding on fours, then I can expect that uh, two and a half of those are going to go through. Then we apply the rend principle. So there's an armor save. Um, I'm looking at from 10 attacks, hitting on fours, wounding on fours, no rend, that the expected average outcome is going to be 1.67 um, points of damage. So as I start playing around, getting them plus one to hit, plus one to wound, maybe finding a rend one, a rend two, a damage two option, a mortal wounds on sixes, I can then start to get a better understanding of the damage expectation from my army is it a true hammer is it a true anvil how much can it absorb how much can it deal is there a hero or a unit that can be a force amplifier to make them do more damage to hit them more reliably to make them do explosions is there a spell that i can can bring to make this unit better and i think that's fundamentally kind of where this is all coming into practice right um, and, you know, one thing uh, that I did want to mention, I think we kind of like brushed over it real quick is like the formula for figuring out like how to get to here. Um, just really quick. It's basically you take the number of attacks that a unit does 
times their um, their odds of success to hit times their odds of success to wound, and then you multiply times damage. If you want to factor in rend, I would usually assume that the opponent has a four-up save, and then modify the four-up save depending on what your rend characteristic is to come out with a sort of like apples to apples comparison between units. Um, that was, you know, in the Excel we were looking at, that was the process that I was going through. And then when you get to the end, you come out with this, you know, expected damage output. And then dividing that by the number of points that the unit costs, you get this damage output per point which is telling you what the unit's offensive efficiency is. And, you know, it's just this weird decimal. It's like an odd construct of a concept. It's hard to really pin down what that number um, means in a more abstract sense. It's really just more of a comparative thing between different units so you see what they can do. Uh, and then the other factor here is uh, damage absorption and damage absorption per point. That is how much damage a unit can soak up. So if you have a unit that is 10 models with one wound each and a four up save. So you're going to save half of all of the attacks against them. So, that means that they're going to absorb double their amount of wounds in um, damage inflicted on them. So their damage absorption is going to be the 10 times uh, you know, the, the inverse of the 50%. So multiplying times 2 comes to 20. Um, you know, for Phoenix Guard, you're saving 75%. So the inverse of that is going to be multiplying times four. So you come up with 40 wounds of damage absorption. So your opponent has to do 40 wounds before saves to that unit to wipe it out. Um, and then dividing that by points to then get that apples-to-apples apples comparison between units and see uh, what the different um, values are relative to each other. And this is why things like, um, and, and you know, to, to bring this back, because, again, I, I imagine there are two people either on this stream. You've got the person who is uh, very foundational in their understanding of maths and... They're just looking for something simple and easy to understand. But then you've got the other side of the fence where you can really get into some granular maths of, of, um, of the game to really kind of get through, you know, this, this damage prevention and understanding. But if I'm the simple per not simple person, that's, that's very rude of me. If I'm at a very foundational level of knowledge when it comes to maths hammer, this is kind of where the value of high rend comes into play because essentially what it's doing, and I'll bring back the other slide, um, if I go, kind of go back to, to some of the original um, 
uh, numbers, you know, the, the D6 foundational, like what are the chances of rolling a dice? When I start bringing a dice roll from a, uh, a three plus armor save and apply rend of minus one or rend minus two, I'm making it harder for you to make that save. So I'm going to be able to get more wounds into the unit. If I have mortal wounds, then I bypass the armor save altogether. And all you're doing is taking any of your, your mortal wound prevention, your deathless save, your phoenix guard save, if you've got one. So straight off the bat, the probability of doing damage through mortal wounds is far greater than one with rend minus one or rend minus two. So, so if you are finding opponents, uh, let's say, again, we'll go, go to the boogeyman right now, which is more tech guard in Petrifix Elite. If you're finding it hard to chew through this base of a three plus armor save um, by doing a whole bunch of mortal wounds, then you're, you're restricting them down to that six up or that five up after save um, as opposed to trying to fight through and do the the more the more damage through the generic just you know rend one rend two no rend so you're playing that weight of dice otherwise yeah definitely i i hope that makes sense because I, I i i'm hoping that we haven't lost anybody yet um but i think yeah. this is kind of and, and and funnily enough the numbers keep growing so we, we either people are just like have fallen asleep to us or we're adding some value here but i think going back to the foundations and the fundamentals it is predicting the likelihood of an event the mortal wound the spell being cast the charge being made uh the run roll being the role that you need it to be the activating of ability or generating a command point or uh the expected output whether again it's going to be the amount of damage the amount of attacks the amount of armor saves um the, the 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 number of charges you're going to make if you're trying to set up a a, a charge you know you're you're in a deep kin and you want to charge everyone in turn two or turn three because it's high tide um what is the likelihood of this event happening should you be coming in off the side of the board should you be charging from nine from ten from seven and what are the impacts of having uh, a force a uh, force multiplier like chromatic cogs whether it's going to be a plus one to cast from Bailwind Vortex or a Harukhanum. And all of a sudden, how does that change the likelihood of the event or the sequence? That is foundationally what I take from this. Right. Um, and if I may just shamelessly self-promote for a moment, um, on my own channel, I'm working on refreshing all of my, like, kind of introductory basic videos on all of these math hammer concepts and try and go through them in in depth step by step in easily digestible bites um what we're going through here is a lot of kind of like high level stuff um and i get into a little bit more of like the nitty-gritty so that you can understand the specifics of what's going on um it can be overwhelming when you look at things at a high level sometimes. Um, but it's when you get down into, you know, just specifically, you know, let's take 15 minutes and just talk about the combat formula and how that works and go step by step through it. It, it It's a lot easier to get your head around. Um, and I'm doing it kind of like, in bite-sized pieces, topic by topic, so that, like, oh, if I understand this one basic thing, well, I'll just skip that video and go to whatever other thing is 
um, you know, kind of what I'm looking for. Um, so yeah, just thought I would shamelessly self-promote for a second. No, now. please. And and below, I do have Paul's channel. I would highly recommend checking it out. Paul does Math Hammer like no tomorrow. Um, one, one other thing that I would point out that, that I know when Math Hammer really become important to me, and I, I'll never forget this, um, it was in the early days of Age of Sigma, and the army that was causing people absolute terror at the time was these uh, these wave of, of 90 bloodletters that would charge you in turn one, uh, or it was stone horns that charged you in turn one. So you had motor hose and you had stone horns. And I remember sitting there, I used to, I used to deploy my army on the line because I'm like, I'm going to claim the objective. I've got a base movement of four. I'm going to use a run roll. I'm going to try to like, you know, try, try to get to this objective as quick as possible. But I found at the time that things like uh, the motor host, for example, um, basically these blood letters would literally hit me in turn one. If I deployed on my line, they almost guaranteed hit me in turn one. But I, 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 I did some maths and I did some basic calculations and I'd worked out that if I deployed on my seven inch line. So I didn't deploy on my 12, I deployed seven inches behind. Statistically, they could not charge me because uh, they would do their maximum movement and that I would be 13 inches, which means that they weren't able to charge. So I was able to remove that threat which then all of a sudden changed the game with uh, the way I was able to respond, maybe get the double turn. My opponent, instead of taking turn one, would actually then give me turn one that allowed me to, to apply some buffs, generate a command point, whatever it might be. So you can think about it offensively as well as defensively. When you're thinking about trying to claim objectives, um, if you know that the objective is 18 inches or 12 inches or 9 inches, um, where do you want to deploy? Um, how much movement do you need? Is there ways that you can kind of swarm the objective, or um, like how do you like, like you, you've got that side of the fence as well? It's not just about combat. It's not about just taking damage. It's not about casting spells, but it's also about claiming the objective and what's the likelihood of of doing all that stuff. So, um, I think I mean, there's probably a lot of ways we can uh, apply this. You know, um, what's the likelihood of bringing back my grots from their little cave on a four plus? Well, it's one in two. So it's probably not a strategy I want to guarantee. Yeah. And there's sometimes there's a lot of like conventional wisdom out there. A lot of things that people just commonly do. And yeah, you know, I'm going to be blunt. Sometimes it's just wrong where you have like this group think that happens that, you know, this is just the best way to play this army. This is the best unit selection. Um, I'm going to raise my hand and be honest. I don't like Phoenix. Brook. And I, I know coach, you like your Phoenix guard. You've, they've done well for you. Um, but, I, but, I, I, but, 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 but in saying that I, I, I know why I chose the Phoenix guard. And I think when we look at right. internet lists, you understand that I'm not taking Phoenix guard because I want to do damage. It's because when I run a hollow heart list, um, I have a juicy center of like a thousand points between the battalion and all the units in my, my magic casting, you know, endless spells. So if I don't have something that can kind of handle the damage from a turn one charge, then that thousand points is essentially thrown in the bin 
because the stone hole and the more crusher, the piggies, the whatever is going to attack me is, 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 is once I've lost that, that, that Phoenix guard. Um, and at the time I had free guild guard, they just couldn't absorb the damage, but you're right. If you're looking for more combat, maybe it's hammers, maybe it's great swords and no one's talking about great swords right now in, in, in cities. Um, and that, blows my mind because every experience I've ever had with great swords since the city's book came out is that they just delete everything they touch. And I don't know why people aren't playing them. Maybe people don't own in that many of the models. Um, I mean, I guess they weren't that great in eighth edition. So um, maybe that's part of it. I mean, this I know I trap. I've got 30 right there. It's, it's the trap of the internet. It's that we're all looking at lists. We're all looking at what what's doing well at tournaments, and stealing that as opposed to thinking about what what what's the best value or what can I tap into. And I think that's when you start looking at people who are breaking the meta, who are doing well, and um, are they're, they're really kind of playing the the tournament scene to their advantage. They're the people that are looking at lists like this, looking at their unit selections, and they're looking at amplifying their 2000 points to the best way possible, as opposed to just picking what's best or what other people are picking. Um. Right. Um, one thing that I, I would point out, right. Is one of the things that I just don't like about Phoenix guard. And I'll, I'll throw this out there for you just as a random sort of thought. Um, a unit of 30 Phoenix Guard is what, 450 points? Uh, 420. So they're 160, 320, and then they get the discount. So it's 420 for a unit of 30. Right. So that's going to have a damage absorption of 60, right? But then you can take... 60 free guild guard for damage absorption of 120. Um, you can take free guild guard, you can take 60 of them, like a 40 and a 20 for 440, and they also have damage absorption of the same 120. Um, now, if you are a little bit bigger of a spender and you go two blocks of uh, 40 free guild guard, so now that's 280 times two. Well, doing, I, doing the maths. Yeah. So it comes down to 560 points. So you're spending an extra 110 points, but now you've got 80 bodies on a four up save. So you have a better ability to capture objectives and you have more uh, damage to be absorbed. So that that's where I kind of come in with the argument about um, Phoenix Guard in particular is like, we have some pretty good cheap infantry that we can throw in the way that, you know, when you have blocks of... 40 free guild guard they're on twos and fours which is mathematically not that much different than threes and threes 
so they're they're throwing around a comparable amount of damage they're more bodies for not that much more uh in points um you know it really comes down to like can you squeeze that extra 100 and whatever points into your list to run 240s but that 240s i think is going to be more beneficial overall to your strategy than running just 130 of phoenix card correct correct and i think that's kind of where i hope people who are listening start thinking about their list a little bit differently is um obviously we can't quantify you know positioning right and um maybe there's a battalion that allows you to put your your guard into the battalion as opposed to you know reducing the drops and quantifying that um there are other ways, you know, there's Tempest, you know, I, I could put these these um, these swordsmen into Tempest Eye and that Allegiance ability gives me plus one to my armor save. So all of a sudden now my guard are on like a four plus. So, so I can start thinking about my decision points differently. Uh, Marek Wolf in the chat made an interesting comment as well around, you know, picking the units that you love. And, and obviously we're talking here about optimizing um probability and we're talking about you know getting an expected outcome if you've got a model you absolutely love it's a you've got the the, the gorgon uh you absolutely love um i don't know chaos spawns or you like whatever whatever the most like whatever your most random unit is and you absolutely love it and you never leave home without executioners that's okay but if you look at your book and you look at your army, are there ways to make your favorite unit better? And it could be a spell, whether it could be an endless spell, whether it's a hero. It's thinking about whether it's, it's getting the most out of your investment, whether it is the um, the Phoenix Guide we're talking about here or it is something like, I don't know, the, the Volley Gun. Um, just how do I make it better? And it might lead you down a wonderful conversation around Lord Ordinator, a Hurricane without the Battle Mage because you don't need it. You've got, um, you know, maybe a Knight of Xeros to re-roll those ones and, you know, there's all this good stuff. And, and you start making that your favourite model so much better. Right. And the simple thing that you can do with Math Hammer with those units that you just love it lets you analyze that unit that you love and figure out where it actually fits into your list. What role is it really going to play for you so that you can get the maximum benefit out of that thing that you love? Because sometimes like, you know, I've got to say to the credit of games workshop for the bulk of units in the game right now, like your, your troops it, for heroes, monsters, other stuff. I think they're still working on fine tuning that formula, but for your rank and file guys, I think their formula is really tight. I think it works really well. So it's a matter of figuring out what to do with that more so than is this good or is this bad? how do I take this bad unit and make it that I like this bad unit that I really like and how do I fit it into a list? Cause they're, they all somewhere in there have their merits and it's a matter of figuring out what you do with it. 
The other thing to consider is going to be the meta. So thinking about the armies that you're playing. And if you move into an, uh, you know, like, for example, um, we've got Techless coming with the Luminous Realm Lords. And, you know, we've got these mega casters like Croak. Then they, we've got a whole bunch of, you know, mega casters coming out who might be getting pluses to unbind or pluses to cast. You know, the, the, the value of a spell cast might be significantly reduced because, yes, right now the likelihood of me casting a spell on a seven might be like 58%. But if I've got uh, someone causing me minuses, getting pluses to unbind, um, all of a sudden that force mul multiplier that I'm getting, maybe I want to try to find a more guaranteed way in a hero. Um, alternatively, every year the General's Handbook comes out and often we get new missions or new, you know, um, new ways to play. So the value, depending on the missions that we're playing or uh, even the, the tournament that we're attending and the missions that they select, um, can make a unit more valuable than, than the other. So, um, and even just, you know, having more bodies on the board uh, when it comes to screening your opponent from doing their deep striking and pushing them out further from your juicy, juicy targets, um, that in itself is a value that you can't alone apply into Maths Hammer. But whether you whether you apply these concepts to build the most optimized, uh, strong tournament list, or whether it's going to be building your favorite units and making the most most out of them, um, I think there's some concepts here you can take out to apply into your game from a list building perspective as well as making better gaming decisions, knowing the likelihood of a charge, knowing the likely damage output and, you know, how many attacks are going to go through, how much damage is going to go through, um, having the right expectations being set. Um, that all kind of makes better decisions ultimately. Right. Um, and it also helps you pick out those hidden gems that are just really good in the meta and therefore they're under-costed because they're not really factored in how popular a thing is. And just going back to our examples that we were working with before, um, Wildwood Rangers, out of all of those selections of similar elite infantry units you have in Cities of Sigmar, they seem like they're the subpar choice. But if you know you've got a meta that is full of monsters, that is... Just like that's the trump card, they're gonna run into those monsters and just make absolute mincemeat of it. The um the scourge runner chariots, for example, is is one sixty points. Uh, it has what six wounds apiece. Uh, it has really high movement. It does some good shooting damage from long range, and the base size is massive as well. And it means that I don't have to spend if if I. If I um, if they do take, you know, one one model out of the three um, is lost, I'm unlikely to spend a command point. So that in itself is a valuable asset, not having to worry about spending my fine resources where I could be putting them into something more important to me, you know, almost like a set and forget unit. Um, yeah. So thinking about, you know, thinking about the way you use your command points, the way you start looking at your armor saves, the ways you start handling the meta, um, yeah, and, and responding to um, the Zenches, the Seraphons, the, you know, like we, if we've got um, uh, Salamanders coming from the sky, you know, how much damage can you can you handle? Um, are there ways that you can respond? And I think this is kind of where Mass Hammer kind of plays its part. 
And um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see uh, what I can start doing with my lists, start, especially with some of these calculators and tools that are available to us if Excel is not your friend. Um, yeah. I feel like I should almost do like a tutorial on Excel on my channel. That might not be a bad idea. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um, and the other thing that you did bring up, um, I think is another valuable thing to just note real quick, is that part of the math hammer that you can think about sometimes is the bases that models are on and how that plays into what's going on with a unit. Um, particularly if you look at like weapon reach versus base size. Um, you know, a 25 millimeter base is less than one inch. So you can get two ranks in with a one inch weapon. You can get three ranks in with a two inch weapon. You know, if you have a 32 millimeter base, though, you can only get one rank in with a one inch weapon and get two in with the two inch weapon. And, and that kind of goes back to the likelihood of an event. You know, um, you, see, I, I, you, see, you used to see this all the time. It's not talked about as much, but, you know, let's say, for example, you've got a block of skeletons and uh, they've got spears um, and you cast Van Hell's Dance Macabre. Um, yes, the potential is 120 attacks. But what is the likelihood that you're going to get 40 skeletons into a unit that are going to be able to put in all of their attacks? The likelihood is probably slim. And then even when you get to do that double piling, which is the Van Hell's Dance Macabre, I, I, I highly doubt that you're going to be able to then surround the, the 40 block of skeletons around what's left from the damage. So, yes, in theory, you might, you might be able to get, um, I don't know, half of the unit, a third of the unit, uh, two-thirds of the unit. But you're right, base sizes play a part. Um, and some of the units really suffer. You know, the first one that comes to my mind is the Deepkin Thralls. The fact that they're on 32 mil bases with a one-inch attack, that means that they're not as juicy as if they were on 25s or they're on two-inch two ranges. So if there is that weapon option kind of out, uh, available to you, Maybe you do go the two inches on a 32 mil or you go with the bases of the 25 because we know you can get more attacks in with a one, one inch attack range. Yeah. Or if you want to get real crazy um, and think about base sizes on heroes and the ones that have uh, effects that are within or wholly within a certain range, your the difference in base size as your base size goes up because you're talking about a radius off of the edge of the base, your total area that that affects goes up as the base size gets larger. So it's one of those weird quirky math things uh, to think about um, where you're just thinking, in an army that I'm familiar with, uh, in my Nurgle army, a seven-inch bubble around a Harbinger of Decay getting a five-up ward save is very different than the seven-inch bubble around a Great Unclean one giving plus three movement. Way more stuff is going to get that plus three movement than that uh, five-up ward save because the base size is so much different. 
the, the other one we haven't talked about as well, which might be worth touching on very briefly, is um, is behemoths. And I think there is a bit of a, a points discrepancy around the value of a behemoth. Now, behemoths bring additional stuff, right? They often fly. They do other cool stuff. But when you look at, you know, points to points, you know, a terror geist is worth 440 or whatever it might be, that might get me, I don't know, 30, 50 models um, for the same kind of points of investment. But then you've got these strategies and you've got these ideas that when a behemoth starts taking damage, it really does lose the value. Um, and Durthu is probably one of the biggest ones that I can think of, is that when Durthu takes like four to six damage, his damage dealing potential goes from like a straight six damage to like D3. And the value of Durthu is almost like you might as well throw him out the window when he's at half strength. So even knowing, you know, how to degrade a profile and uh, mitigate the damage output or the movement or the um, the threat potential of your opponents then makes those long-range 30-inch attacks or it might help you prioritise who you attack first. Let's get that profile down as much as possible so that you reduce the the the, the, the hit back or you you reduce the, the damage potential of those big monsters. Yeah. And understanding the math hammer too is important when you're looking at those monster tables and the wound tables to see how much power is actually going down on those things as they take wounds. Some of them just nosedive when they start taking wounds. Some of them have very little impact at all. Um, it, the thing that really sticks out to me is the Caradron Overlord's ships, the frigate and the ironclad. Um, the only thing that changes for them is movement. All of their firepower stays the same, no matter how many wounds they take, which is kind of crazy when you're really thinking about it. <laughs> Especially when they, they can, oh, I mean, they can fly high, but I, I think once they, they hit a certain amount of damage, they can't fly high anymore. But um, right. like my Dreadlord on Black Dragon's the same thing, right? Like um, once it takes a whole bunch of wounds, the, the attack potential is still really rough. It's just there's a couple of attacks that kind of go down. But the big, the big like bite attack, um, it's I think it's from from memory, it, it's it's still quite generous. So you can, you know, if you're trying to look at how you get the most out of your uh terrorgeist is a perfect example, right? Even when a terrorgeist is almost dead, it still has the same attack characteristics for the the the, the mortal wound output at the end. Um, the sixes do those, uh, those like, rah. yeah, and it, it can make a huge, huge difference. Um, it, it's, it, I've found that with, uh, like the free guild Griffins, like I get so disappointed by them when they start taking damage. He hits like a bit of pillow. Um, anything else you want to add to the to the maths hammer, making better decisions? I mean, we could talk about this for hours and hours and we could bust out the spreadsheets. We could be um, doing a whole bunch of things as well. I think, as you've rightly pointed, um, the real science to this comes down to when you start applying this to your own army, looking at the decision points in your own army. And that is a video series in itself for every particular army. And you could probably spend hours on particular units, like just looking at your battle line, you know, and then breaking up the maths and looking at the probability and how much damage you can do and how much can I save and how do I then optimize that battle line unit? And then how does it compare to the other battle line unit? There's there's a whole bunch of stuff 
at, at a unit level. So uh, I highly employ everyone to go look at their own army a little bit differently here. But is there anything else you want to add to this discussion um, before we kind of wrap things up? You know, I think the bottom line for me is that by doing the work ahead of time, by doing the math, you're going to write better lists and you're going to be a better player. It's really just doing your homework before you ever get to the tabletop. And by doing your homework, getting the math in your head, you kind of understand what every unit's going to do. You're going to make better decisions in game and you're going to make those decisions a lot quicker and a lot easier. They're going to seem intuitive to you rather than things that you have to try and crunch numbers on on the fly or take a guess based on how it feels. Um, you can move more confidently through things. It lets you play more quickly, more confidently. And, you know, honestly, I have more fun when I've, you know, done a lot of my homework ahead of time because now my game's a lot more loose. I'm not thinking as hard while I'm playing. I can just have more banter with my opponent because I don't have to think as hard. I can concentrate on something tactical instead of something mathematical. Um, I think overall it's a matter of, you know, thinking of the math hammer side of things as just doing your homework and doing your preparation before you get to the table so that it gives you the opportunity to be a better player or just have more fun while you're at the table. Drop the mic. I couldn't agree more. This, this is a, this is not about going when I'm at a tournament or when I'm at, you know, Adepticon, I don't bust out my math hammer calculator and I try to work out the probability. And, you know, when it, when it's, when it's combat and we're trying to work out who, you know, who do I activate next? I'm not doing the calculator. It's stuff that I've kind of understood uh, before before we've commenced, um, so that um, I wonder if Paul. I want. I have a feeling Paul's batteries died because I told him to to charge up his phone. But in case that Paul doesn't come back, it's about the preparation. It's about preparing to ease back. Welcome back, Paul. Um, it's that. about the preparation. It's about um, welcome back. It's about knowing this stuff in advance so that you can make better decisions and faster decisions as well. So drop the mic to you, mate. You've um, you've absolutely nailed that. Thank you. If people want to find out more about Paul Conti, Radio Free Hammer Hall, if they haven't subscribed already because they're, they're, um, they haven't found the goodness of your channel, um, where can they find you and talk Math Hammer? Uh Radio Free Hammer Hall is the channel on YouTube. Uh, at PMC Math Hammer is the handle on Twitter. Um, I'm not on Twitter that much, but when I get notifications, I look at them. So just at me and I'll pay attention. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm also uh, the uh, administrator of the Age of Sigmar memes page. Uh, if you uh, happen to be over there, it's a way to find me on Facebook if you are uh, so inclined on Facebook as well. Um, I'm over there pretty frequently in a lot of the you know, different Facebook groups and things like that. Don't be shy. Send me a message on Facebook. Friend me on Facebook if you can find me. 
I don't mind. I friend just about everybody. So um, I'm always happy to talk to people, ask questions. If you want to just chat, whatever, talk about life. I'm here for you, man. Respect. Uh, Paul, it has been an absolute pleasure having you. I, I do highly recommend you guys go check out Radio Free Hammer Hall. You'll get to better understanding. You'll see how he puts this into practice. Um, there was an amazing video you did recently around shooting and looking at Cities of Sigma and just looking at like the damage output and the potential. And I think regardless if you're a Cities player or not, and we've just used that as an example because we're both Cities players and it was just quick responses that we could kind of bring up, but apply the same methodology in your corn lists, in your slanish lists, in your, your, your uh, flesh in courts, whatever it might be, the principles are still the same. Um, there are plenty of tools out there. Uh, I will link the two tools in the, the show description after this video kind of edits. Uh, but Paul, thank you very much for your time. Uh, don't forget your triumph guys, get in there. I can't wait to see what you guys do with your math hammering and, um, Thank you all. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And if Doug get out chat, don't be afraid of him. <laughs> See <you> folks. <laughs> G'day. I hope you enjoyed that video and you're left with some new ideas. One of the biggest ways you can contribute to AOS Coach is by liking the video you just watched and leaving a comment in the comment section. This lets YouTube know this is a good video and it should recommend it to other hobbyists. If you'd also like to support the channel even further like these bloody legends, go check out AOS Coach on Patreon. Otherwise, don't forget your triumph.